Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a more livable, beautiful, and healthy built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of the Aesthetic City. Today's guest is a classical architect from Spain who has been working in London for a long time now. Holding degrees from the University of Sevilla and the Technical University of Madrid, he went to work at Stanhope Gate Architecture for 12 years, followed by a current role at the Catherine Pooley Design Studio. He also serves as the Director of Education at the Classic Planning Institute, where he guides cohorts of students to learn all about the world of classic planning and time-tested design principles. I had the pleasure of meeting our guest at the La Table Ronde Summer School in Bruges, and again at this year's IMCL Congress in Poundbury. His expertise aligns perfectly with the themes we regularly explore here on The Aesthetic City. So please welcome Pablo Funes. Wonderful. Welcome, Pablo, to the The Aesthetic City podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ruben. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, so we already know each other for some time because I was a student at the Classic Planning Academy last year. Mm-hmm. and Yes. Then we met a lot over Zoom, um, just with all the lessons, which was uh, yeah, every week almost for a long time. Every week. And then we met uh, for the first time in real life, hmm? yeah, in Belém at the La Table Ronde Summer School near Bruges. And last week we met again in yeah, last week we met again in Poundbury. And in London, actually, so that was really fun. Yeah, it, it was quite a fun weekend at the and the congress in Pambury and also all the things that we did in in London. So it was a pleasure to meet you in person, which is always good to yeah. meet people. At, at the end of the day, you are all, only one of the two students I have met in in person from the Classic Planning Academy. So it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very international, worldwide group. So uh, I hope you can meet some of the others as well. It was, I think, yeah. I have also met some of them. Uh, but yeah, that's really great. It is not that so, that so maybe a little bit about your background, because mm-hmm. why did you become an architect? And have you always done classical architecture, or was there some kind of a moment when you realized that you liked traditional and classical architecture? I think that if I have to be honest, talking about if I always wanted to be an architect, I think I was one of those kids that when he was asking in kindergarten, what would you want to be? I would say an architect. I think that since I was little, I wanted to be an architect. My my father, when he was young, he was a draughtsman. He wanted to become an architect, but he couldn't for circumstances of the time. And there were always books of architecture in my house drawing, uh, drafting instruments, etc. So it was always quite uh, clear uh, that that, there was that influence around. And also, I guess that probably because since I was a a toddler, I started to show some interest, there were always construction toys around. I think initially, all kids feel fascinated by big machines, big trucks, uh, big cranes. We started with that. And then probably it's very soon moved to to timber pieces and then very soon as well to Lego. And then the moment they brought me the Lego, I started doing houses. Most of the kids do cars. I was doing houses. And I think that since then, since then it was always wanted to become an architect, always, always an architect. <laughs> and then obviously the time came in which I had to, to make the decision. It was easy. Architect. 
And then the next question is like, when do I want it to, when did I decide or, or, or about classical architecture? I think, I mean, I am from Southern Spain and you have that always around you. You are surrounded by heritage, just surrounded by, by historic architecture. I remember we used to go to the beach to a very close to, to a Roman ruins called Bailo Claudia in Tarifa. And you could you can see those ruins from, from the beach. So it was always very fascinating to see those columns. I would say as well, I like a lot when I was a child, Asterix and Obelix comics, and especially, of course, wanted to be an architect, Asterix and Cleopatra, which is all the movie with the architect and the palace for Caesar. So that was always that thing and that fascination with antiquity and with, with historic architecture. I remember in high school, we started to see the Gothic architecture, which I was fascinated with, and so on and so on. So when I started uni, I said, oh, this is what I want to do. I'm going to become an architect. I'm going to design these beautiful buildings. Uh, but then obviously I had a clash with reality. I, it, I remember my first class of history, we started uh, learning about neoclassical mm-hmm. architecture, about Ledoux, about Boulet, about Schinkel, and I was super happy. This is what I want to be. This is what we're doing in other subjects. We were also seeing history. And I thought it was magical. That's what I want to do. But then very soon we moved toward modernism and then had like a clash with reality. But I always have this thing that, no, why? I mean, it's not only about studying history. It's also about building, uh, building from the past, taking inspiration from the past. Why the only inspiration I can take is Le Corbusier and Mies? Why can't I get inspiration from Palladio? So I was a bit like that at the beginning at uni. Why, why, why? And then until you discover that there is no, there is no way. You just have to say what your professors say, and that's what I did. Not then smile, get my title, and run. And once I finish, I could do whatever yeah. I wanted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, what was studying architecture in Spain like? I would say, I mean, normally with all this movement, traditional architecture, etc., studying architecture is always portrayed as a bad thing. And believe me, it is bad. It's, we, we normally joke about calling it architecture instead of architecture. So that's telling you, that, that pointed you <laughs> in the direction. But um, I would say that it was yeah. harsh, but it was beautiful. And I would do it again. Because if you have the vocation, if you have the call to become an architect, you don't care. You don't mind about this. Uh, but you need to have that thing of wanting to, 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 to go through that torture, to that architecture, to, to go through it. I would say that in my case, I went to a modernist school. I didn't go to, to any classical one, but we had two, but I think it was two important focus, two important points to, to, mm-hmm. to, to take consideration in Sevilla. I studied in, in Sevilla and did the master in Madrid. One was you had to be mm-hmm. accurate, logic, and you had to justify everything you were doing. That was very important for all our professors. No matter how modern, how modern is, how classical, how traditional, yeah. every decision had to be perfectly justified in terms of functionality, um, regulations, everything. So that was something that you learn a lot through through that. It's like it it might not be the most exciting way, but you learn how to do a staircase, you learn how to do a bathroom, you learn how to do a lot of stuff. That then you you have to work on that in the real life. So I would say that that was one important point. Another point that I felt it's very important in one of the what I think in Spain is good at teaching architecture, even, even modernist, 
is the, at least in the South, is the importance of accurate drawing. We had to draw a little bit by hand, quite a lot actually, yeah. but we were always told that drawing by hand is the step to know how to have to how to draw with the computer. And that was important because we had to, you, you had to do first your, all mm-hmm. your drawing by hand and then you would cut it up. But even cutting the drawings, you had to develop your style. It was not just a matter of tracing lines like crazy. In the computer, you needed to learn about like thicknesses, etc. And all our professors were like a bit of old school. So they always were pushing us to use the same parameters that you would use for hand drawing in the past to apply them on AutoCAD. For them, using CAD was an extension of mm-hmm. the drawing board. And the same way that we, we hardly uh, write by hand anymore, for them it was something that it's the way, it's the way to be, it's, it's, it's a tool. It's a mean, not an ending, which I think that nowadays is changing that, that idea in which we are more and more pushed to only use the computer for everything. But back then, I'm talking the early 2000s, there was a still that uh, that care on drawing and accuracy on the drawings and teachers would be super strict if someone wasn't uh, drawing uh, correctly. Actually, remember, I, I, mm-hmm. I found it very funny with an anecdote with a professor back then. I was presenting a, a design. I was already given up with the idea of, of discussing classical versus traditional with this professor. And I was doing a, a very simple building, very yeah. well represented, sort of contextual minimalism, as sometimes I like to, to talk it in southern Spain, and which is basically you do a cube clad in a stone, and then you're a contextualist. And then, I mean, the teacher saw it, but he didn't <laughs> like it. It was just, obviously, he knew what I wanted to do, like trying to emulate something classical, blah, blah, blah. He didn't like it. And close to me, there was another colleague who was doing a sort of fractal thing, uh, fractals, para- the beginnings of parametricism, which <laughs> back then in 2003 was still a thing that Sahadi was starting to do. And then I remember this teacher with very, very mean, yeah. he said, it's a shame that those who draw don't think and those who think don't draw. So he insulted both of us. <laughs> but that tells you a bit the importance of the draw of, of drawing and, and, and doing good quality drawings that they were giving back then in, in yeah. Sevilla. And I would say that the last one, which is the one that I actually enjoyed most in Sevilla during all those years, was my relief on that torture, was history and composition mm-hmm. and theory of architecture. <laughs> I had the pleasure yeah. of being a student with Rafael Manzano Martos. So I, I had the pleasure of having him multiple classes, seeing his drawings, seeing him... Um, See, uh, I, I had I had the pleasure of having him as as a professor for in in many classes and many others who were his disciples, because he created a, a school within the school, and again we had to to be accurate. We had to be they, they were pushing us. Okay, you want to do a study of this building? You need to go to the archive. You need to study the plans. You need to do a composition of the plan. That was very very interesting for me. Of course, I that's how I learned all the precedents, all the history, because they were also very strict and very passionate about that. So you, you were having a lot of fun with with, with that part of, of, of learning history. Mm-hmm. And, and on that sense, I would say that my experience even at the end was a bit bitter because I just wanted to leave. It was good. And, and, and I say, and I think that Sevilla is, yeah. the, apart from being a beautiful city to live in, it's a good place to study architecture. So for me, it was a good experience. And as I was saying, if I had yeah. to start again, 
I wouldn't have gone to Madrid. I wouldn't have gone to Barcelona or to Pamplona. Just to mention the best ones in Spain, I would have stayed in Sevilla. I think that the only thing I might have regretted yeah. of not having done there, because it was not the style of the, of, of the School of Architecture, there was doing models, because that's also very important. Doing models of the buildings in Sevilla, they oh, yeah. were not very very keen on that. Like for, but for example, in Madrid, they were super keen. And people, the students who went who mm-hmm. were going out from Madrid, they were doing amazing models. Well, in my case, we didn't develop that thing of being good at doing models of architecture, but we were good at drawing, which the people in Madrid weren't. Or they were, but they had to stay more time. They were first good in, in models, then good in drawing. Well, ourselves, we were good in drawings, but we were not doing any model at all. I guess that nowadays, probably with 3D printing mm-hmm. and all the other techniques, things might have changed. So for those of you who are listening from the School of Sevilla, etc., bear in mind that I finished in yeah. 2008. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that's relatively late, I would say. You finished in 2008? Yeah, I finished in 2008 because... I I started studying. I mean, I had my issues with the professors on, on, on design. And at the beginning, when I wanted to try a bit more uh, argumentative mm-hmm. and combative with them, I didn't have, I didn't pass. So I had to repeat the course again. So that's being this, being workshop projectors, as it mm-hmm. was called in Sevilla, the main subject, if you fail and you have to do it again, it's a, it's a tender yeah. for you to, to evolve. And then, I mean, I think at, in 2006, I started to work. I said, okay, I want to work. Yeah. I want to get real experience. And I was working for two years in in an office. It was the, mm-hmm. the, the times of the real estate bubble. So that office was thriving. We were doing blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. Like blocks. Really horrible, but really profitable And for my boss. And they were paying us quite well. We were interns, very well paid. We were all happy. I was learning actually a lot. Construction, regulation, planning applications. In Spain, and it was the first job, and you are you go from being a student and mom and dad paying you money to just you have your own money, so you you get used to that. And I start I worked more time than I should have been doing. I should have been a year, and I stayed two years. But then, at the same time, that gave me experience. That then later on was good because when I started my first job, I already my first job as an architect, I already had the had the experience to know how to face. A project. Yeah. So you now work in London. Could you tell me how you ended up working there in a London firm? That's that's quite a bit of an interesting story. And also tells us, I mean, and I like telling it mm-hmm. because it's a lot of people who are very good and very generous with me when I was younger. And I think it's important to to, to network. At every stage, at, at all at all stages, but especially in our little world of classical and traditional architecture, it's important to network. And as I and as I said once, noblesse oblige. And those who are now in a position of helping, we should be helping everyone who is starting the same way we got help. So I finished in two thousand and eight, the beginning of the crisis, nothing, and I moved from 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 my house in the south to the north in Spain in Zamora. And I was there working for a year and a half until the tap was closed, no more, no more projects. And I came back to, 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 to my parents' house. And then I said, okay, yeah. there is no way of for me finding a job in Spain. 
I didn't have an, a network of contacts to, to start opening my own office. That was also the problem of the crisis. No, everyone was scared. Nobody wanted to do anything. So I decided to apply for, um, for a master at the Prince Foundation. And I prepared my portfolio, I prepared my application. Mm-hmm. I submitted it. I got admitted, but I didn't get the grant, which meant that I couldn't pay oh. for it. So basically, very good. Back then, Matthew Hardy, who was the director of the master, I think he still is, he gave me a letter of recommendation. Mm-hmm. Okay, with his letter, you go to offices yeah. and you present it. And at the same time, I already knew because back then, I think this is something I forgot to say, at the, at the end of my career, I started, of all my studies at uni, I opened a, a blog. It was the time everyone was opening a blog in the late 2000s. I opened mine about classical architecture. Mm-hmm. It is still there. It is called mm-hmm. Otra Arquitectura oh. Es Posible, for those of you who want to who are listening mm-hmm. and want to, to check it. It's there. I have It hasn't been updated in 10 years, but most of the entries are there. And it, it, it allowed me to start meeting people. The first person I knew in this world was Lucien style. It was by the time he was doing the School of Architecture in Viseu, and I wanted to do a short interview to him. Obviously, back then, they were written. We couldn't do a podcast or things like that. There was too much technology for, for them. So we decided to... I started <laughs> writing to him. The interview never happened, but we stayed in touch. So he invited me to Rome, to the juries, because he was then professor in Notre Dame, in, in, the, in the school in Rome. And we stayed in touch. He helped me with a couple of competitions I did back then, because I had plenty of time. So I did a couple of competitions just to, to train myself more in, in classical language. And then I explained to him, Lucien, having unemployed for several months, uh, uh, Matthew Hardy has given me this recommendation letter, but I sent to companies and they tell me that they don't need anyone. Remember, it was 2010, still with all this crisis behind. So, and then he told me that, oh, why don't you present it to to, to Stanhope Get Architecture to Lorenzo Sagarchi because he's, he needs an architect in Spain. And that's how, I mean, I, I, I uh-huh. always remember, I'm very thankful for, for, for the 12 wonderful years I have spent at the Stanhope. And Ali was like a father for me in, the, in that sense, like a big mentor. And I did, I sent him my CV. I always remember, I sent my CV mm-hmm. at nine and at 11, I was, I was booking my flight to do the interview in London. So then, I mean, we, things went well. I, we, I started being the like sort of executive architect for the project he was doing yeah. in Spain, lovely project. And when it finished, he told me, you have two options. You can't go back to where you come from or you can come to London. And I said, no, don't worry. I'm going to London. Oh, don't you, do you mm-hmm. want to think about it? No, I'm going to London. And then that was 2012. And, uh, and then <laughs> since then, I stayed there for yep. 12 years at, at the Stanford. We did lots of wonderful projects. And last year, I think I had a sort of middle-aged crisis and I decided to, to change a bit my, my field of, of working and move from external architecture to interior architecture. Mm-hmm. And then now, since last year, I'm working at Catherine Pulley yeah. in, in London. I mean, I am enjoying a lot of the a lot of interiors because at the Stanhope, I I did a lot of interiors and I interacted a lot with interior designer. And yeah. I wanted to work on it. But when you are in the architectural part, you cannot do interior design. But when you're in interior design, you can do the architectural part because you can work on the interiors. So whenever <laughs> I had the, the opportunity, when the opportunity arose, I say, okay, sorry, I mean, it's been 12 wonderful years, but 
I think it's time to to make a move and try and make a I'll make a try. Otherwise, I would regret later on life. So, I I decided to take the m- multiple opportunities that London offers you in terms of work, um, and get it and and make a change. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So now you work more on uh, on interior kind of uh, on interior design. But what what kind of projects are your favorite kind of projects? I think that obviously the the way I moved to 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 the careers or or, or architecture I moved. My first job in Spain, I I, I it, it was wonderful. I had a wonderful experience with them. I learned a lot with Jose Alonso Garcia Moralejo, my first boss. But we were a bit like the Ryanair of architecture. We were doing four projects per month, always uh, single housing, <laughs> very economical, actually very sustainable and very vernacular because Zamora has very strict regulations in terms of how housing should look like in, in the rural areas. So I remember, yeah, we were having, depending on the region, the three regions, the province was divided. You were having a, a book who was telling you how you had to design the house. Externally, so I learned quite a lot: stonework, brickwork, uh, building with a slate, building with timber. Really, really beautiful. But then, when I moved to London, it was a totally new world because it was high-end architecture. And high-end architecture is beautiful because one of the things that you can do a lot of cool yeah. stuff. Clients don't complain usually too much about the budget, or if they complain, it's minimal. And even you also have to go through the painful thing of the value engineering you can do really beautiful stuff. And I think that the the good and the bad thing is that you get used quickly to live in that fairy tale. And I still have to say, I mean, the, 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 it, you, you lo- I love doing all those projects in which a client comes and tells you, I want this in Palladian style. They're, edu- they're very educated clients, so they will come and will ask you that my favorite Palladian villa is uh, Villa Malcontenta. I want to something. I don't want the Villa Malcontenta. I want something inspired in the Malcontenta. Or you go to Scotland and then they want to extend the house and and do it in such a way that the house will look as it has been naturally extended over the over the years. And then you have to invent the storytelling. I would say that those are my favorite ones because or, or the ones that I get a feeling more comfortable with. And then when I have moved to interiors, it's basically the same thing. You work with high-end projects, and the only difference is that with in my previous company we were dealing with exteriors, and now we're dealing with interiors, and we interact with with, with an architect. I am some somehow yeah. like the person in between, the the, the the interior designer team, and the and the architect. I am just the, the one who ensures that whatever we propose works for the architect, and also to ensure that the architects were always classical architects and traditionalists architects specializing high-end. They are not going to affect what we want to do in the in the interior. So and then, I mean, I'm whenever necessary, I mean I jump mm-hmm. into interiors which I love because it is something that I have never done. I I love doing all that all that mm-hmm. stuff in that sense. But at, on the other side, in my previous company we also did some projects yeah. in Aldugop in Euro Disney. We want to beautiful projects as a coordinated team. I contributed a little bit in both because it was with other residential ones. But that's something I would say that while I like a lot yeah. and I enjoy a lot, I would say that that, that, that has ended up being my speciality, the high-end residential building, private residential, I think that I I would like to work more on, 
or more like development, something like that, because it's when you're actually creating city. That's what I was saying before, that doing high-end yeah. private residential is living in a wonderful fairy tale that you don't want to wake up from it because it's a wonderful dream, but it's a dream after all. And yeah, so that's why I would say that my favorite yeah. ones are those, but they always have the will and the thing of, of working on something more residential, etc. which I guess that obviously now uh, with, with working on high-end interiors that has faded, but you never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's wonderfully said. It's a dream you don't want to wake up from, but yeah, it's a dream nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is actually, you can call it a golden cage if you want as well, but it's a fairy tale. And some people, because I have met over the years, you meet people who arrive to the dream and they don't like it. And they say, no, I, I don't like it. I don't like this. I don't like, because you need to have a certain attitude. You need to be very accommodative to the client. You work in a very whimsical environment because the client, want, if they want to change that idea, you have to, in two days, provide a new proposal. So it, it can be quite challenging, but the results, when you go at the end, they're beautiful. And I always say that these things, as any project in architecture, is like raising a child. You put all your love, you put all your expectations, and you want them, probably mm -hmm. you want them to go in a certain <laughs> way. It doesn't happen. Things go in a totally different way, but still at the end, you still feel proud of your children. Yeah. And I think it's the same with, with a building. They never go as you want to go, yeah. but you always feel proud because those challenges are what make the building beauty. Yeah. So do you think you want to stay doing interiors long or is there some moment where you, yeah, like you said, want by to maybe now, focus more on residential buildings now, or are you... Kind of... By now I'm super happy working on the interiors because it's a totally new field um, and it's something that mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy. And by now I am happy with it because whatever things I cannot get on the interiors, and this is something that I, I, we, we, we probably will we'll talk yeah. soon about, it's I can do it through the classic planning institute and the and, and the classes and and all the things that 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 they did with you last year and I'm do I have them with the students this year. So on one side, all the architectural part, all the external architectural part, I think I got it through through the academy while the the, the working on the interiors give me a different glimpse and I still can apply everything I know in in a job and I still enjoy designing without probably having to have the constraints. That, yeah. that working in, a, in an architectural firm gives you because at the end of the day you have to work with budgets, clients, um, and it's not the same working on ideal projects, which is always beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is there any, um, maybe a bit on a different note, any building in Spain or Britain which particularly strikes your fancy? What would you really, any favorite building perhaps even? I would say, yeah, I, I cannot say one favorite because that is always, it, it, the list is endless. But yeah. I would say that buildings that have yeah. impacted me from early years in in Spain, I would say that the first one was the, the market in Algeciras, which is an Art Deco building. Well, some people will call it modernist, but it's actually more Art Deco than modernist. And it's a dome, massive mm -hmm. dome with no pillars. It was the biggest dome done till the moment in the 1930s. And it was something that when I was a child, my dad was taking me always to that market and was telling me, look, Pablo, this, this building doesn't have any pillar inside. It's incredible. So I would say that was the first one that made an impact on me and being also my hometown, etc. 
Yeah. Then I would say that it was the Church of San Mateo in Tarifa was again when I was learning about history, about Gothic, etc. We were going to church to, to the church, and it was amazing. It's a beautiful Gothic church. Actually, the, the most southern Gothic church in, in Europe, built in the 16th century. And then, I mean, it's it's they're not impressive building, but it's the building that makes you mm-hmm. an imprint. And also it had a classical facade. So for me, it was interesting to see how the Gothic inside had a Corinthian facade, etc. So that was then, of course, being in Sevilla, the Giralda, yeah. the Alcazar, <laughs> and the Cathedral. That was the, the trio. I would say the whole city of Sevilla was the, the most inspiration because I still yeah. sometimes, when I start doodling, and especially in my previous company, sometimes my, my boss was sometimes joking and mm-hmm. said, oh, you do again Sevilla when he was doodling something. Uh, and, and, I, and I always was <laughs> doodling things that look like building in Sevilla because it's what I have in my mind. Because Sevilla is uh, architecturally, uh, the part of the architectural, traditional architecture in Sevilla is a visual festivity. You have everything happening there at the same time. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very, very interesting and very, yeah. very good to to see and then coming i mean then i lived in madrid for a couple of years when he was finishing this project at the stanhope gate and then in madrid obviously you have to say el Escorial, yep. a massive building that everyone has to to see if you go to madrid uh and it looks like i'm doing that like the, the, the tourism office in 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 spain but yeah it's, <laughs> it's quite a wonderful building but then i mean coming when i moved to london obviously what's the, what's the name of the building again El Escorial is both a monastery and a palace. It's the Spanish equivalent of Versailles. But you know, the Spaniards yeah. were much more religious, much more serious, all this uh, Spanish seriousness in the 16th and 17th century. So it was a mix of a monastery and a palace. Mm-hmm. Very interesting because obviously it mixes both. And it was in the time of Philip II. So you had, he wanted to build a monastery to pray, etc. And at the same time, a palace according to his status. So very, very interesting, very, very severe but very, very beautiful. And then, mm-hmm. once I yeah. moved to London, I got yeah. the, the, the beautiful Georgian architecture. I mean, I had, when, when I moved to, to London, I mean, I had uh, mm-hmm. friends living in Victoria, in Pimlico, which is where I live, and obviously decided to stay living here, and I love my Georgian terraces living around here. I have been 12 years living in the, in the same top floor attic uh, in, in, in a crumbling Victorian building, which I love. And that was the, the first impression, really, really beautiful. But then I would say the two ones yeah. that impressed me more in London. One is the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, which is shocking to see that mm-hmm. wonderful Indian revival building mixed with Chinese, mixed with neoclassical in, in, in Brighton. And the other one is there is an arcade, that com- an archway, sorry, that communicates Piccadilly with, uh, with uh, Regent Street. And it's called Air Street. And because Regent Street has a curved shape and Piccadilly is straight, the building is a bit like mm-hmm. in perspective, a very, very forced perspective that creates an effect that looks like you are in a, an engraving by Piranesi. Um, that again, I mean, it's yeah. it, it's very, very wonderful effect of the building that you have in in there. And that's probably why, why I like it, because it's very dramatic and you don't have that drama. In English architecture, usually, English architecture, British architecture is very serene, very calm, mm-hmm. and those little glimpses of dramatic effect because they they, they yeah. pop out quickly 
on the on the old or otherwise serenity and tranquility of the English architecture. Those were what I liked most. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a southern soul, and I have the baroque in my beans and in, and and in my jeans. And and you like all that drama, all that contrast, all all, all that. And yeah, yeah, those are the two points in London. I would say that are my favorites. Then I mean, if we have to talk about wood buildings in London, then it's a totally separate discussion. But being the the ones that I like yeah. most, yeah. like personally, because they have there's some meaning to me, they have something to me. Mm-hmm. I would say those those ones in the whole UK. That there are other super wonderful ones. I mean, I would yeah. stay hours and hours talking about them. But I would say that those two ones are to me the ones that <laughs> most impacted me as an architect. One because of the of the dramatic yeah. scenery that creates, and the other one because you cannot expect it there. So Brighton Pavilion is. <laughs> I must yeah. see, and, and you don't expect it there. I would say also as well, Bath. Bath as well. I mean, when I learned English in Spain, yeah. our professors made us read a lot Jane Austen. So when I went to Bath for the first time, mm-hmm. it was like, okay, you feel that you're in a novel by Jane Austen. You understand Jane Austen when you when you yeah. go to Bath, and you feel that you're in Pride and Prejudice looking for Mr. Darcy, and that was fun as well. So I would say, yeah, but... In general, the two mm-hmm. most impactful for me, the Royal Pavilion and the and that cornering Air Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bath is indeed stunning, and I can advise anyone who hasn't been there to to go there. <laughs> but uh, you, yeah, and and was it hard to adapt to Georgian architecture or English classical architecture when you started designing um, in England? Like, what? How was the transition like? It was not. It was not difficult because once you know the rules, you know the rules. So, but then it 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 becomes a bit complex when you have to deal with different periods, when you have to deal with listed buildings, because then you are not free in the composition. Georgian architecture is, despite sometimes being perceived as architecture based on strict things or on a set of patterns that you always repeat because that's what the builders did. It has a lot of invention, but when you are constrained to a conservation area, etc., it requires a little bit of adaptation. I wouldn't say it was difficult, but it requires a little bit of adaptation, to especially to work with different details. The print, the main one for me was the sash window. I had never drawn a sash window before coming to UK. So that was something that was challenging to, to do. Uh, the way the shutters are built here, because they are embedded into the, into the reveals, that was quite an amazing journey to, to do. But in general, if you know the classical language, getting adapted to Georgian architecture is mm-hmm. just the adaptation of knowing the, 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 the difference between one, uh, not between one and the other, between what you can do, what you cannot do, and the, the local adaptations that that language does. I have to say it was more difficult to get adapted to the Scottish baronial architecture, which is much more free in composition okay. and mm-hmm. is adapted to each region. We did a wonderful project in, in Scotland, in Jura, which is now a hotel. And that one we had to, we, it was a mix of a country house and the stables. And that one we had to, to adapt and to create and to recreate the, the, the Scottish vernacular architecture mixed with baronial. And that was challenging and interesting because when you build fully classical and Georgian is fully classical and the client doesn't like it, you can explain them easily. No, this is how classical rules work. We can 
bend them a little bit, but we cannot change them completely. And that's easy. That's easy, or because or, or you go through yeah. a different path. The the options are the options for design are much more structured. So and 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 you can argue that you cannot yeah. move the columns more because then they would look ridiculous being so so distanced. Well, when you go to, to baronial architecture, <laughs> it's much more freedom. It's based on more medieval architecture, but medieval vernacular architecture, not purely Gothic. So you have a lot of elements to, to adapt. You can be classical, but if you don't want to be classical, you don't have to. And you have the big windows, which follow their own rules, etc. So it was much more challenging to, to design that. I think that has been more, because then I have designed buildings in the Middle East. Yeah. But those ones, because of my knowledge in Spanish architecture, etc., those were easy. I would say that the, the most challenging one was the building in Scotland, because it was also the first project I did when I came to UK. And yeah, it was shocking because it was like, you know, going from having done a wonderful project in central Spain to do a wonderful project on the other side of the world, almost in Scotland. It was all a cool move at the same time moving to London was a big cultural shock. I mean, I love Scotland. I love I love Scottish. I have a lot of Scottish friends. But when you don't speak English as your first tongue, Scottish accent can be a bit hard. So that was, I would say that was the hardest part for for me. I mean, and with all the love to, to the Scottish people who might be yeah. listening. But it, it was that. It was the, the, I would say it was the hardest thing. Georgian, as far as you know, the rules of the language, Georgian is rule-based. Mm-hmm. So, and when, it, and when it is not based on rules, it's very easy. It, it basically tells you which rules they are breaking. So, because they, I think it, it comes with the English politeness, in which excuse me, but I'm breaking the law, and and that's why it's it's very easy to approach. <laughs> it requires a little bit of adaptation because obviously, moving from the architecture of one country to another requires adaptation. But if you know the rules, if you know how to design columns, colonnades, porticos, it it comes by itself. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And I think the same could be true perhaps for Dutch architecture, uh, having more freedom and uh, variation perhaps. Correct. And actually Dutch architecture is super interesting. I I normally say I'm, uh, uh, that architecture in the cultural mm-hmm. peripheries, without, without any negative connotation to cultural peripheries, it's much more interesting than architecture in the metropolis. The architecture in the metropolis is perfect, but perfection can be boring. <laughs> While the architecture in the in the in the cultural yeah. peripheries is interesting because you are only getting a part of the information. You are only getting half of the information that was getting to the metropolis, but you had to work with what you had. And then that way, for example, you see the first Robert yeah. Adam uh, when he was in Scotland with his with his brother James. All that architecture he did in Scotland was way much quirkier and interesting, but still classical, than the architecture he later did in in London. You go to Claude Nicole Le Dux, all the architecture he did outside Paris was much more interesting than what he did in Paris. And then when he was commissioned to do all the barriers, all the the propylae, all the gates to Paris, he just applied everything he had done there. Gaudí. Wouldn't have been Gaudí if he had studied and lived in Madrid. Yeah. He would have been a wonderful neoclassical and neo-historical architect, but would have never done what he did if he if he had not been in Barcelona. 
And same thing for, for Dutch architecture. The Netherlands were a super wealthy country in 17th century, but mm-hmm. information was arriving with some difficulties. All the treatises were coming through Antwerp and through the Spanish uh, territories, which was not a good way of communicating with your enemy. So they, they, they had to, they, 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 the Dutch architecture had to learn classicism its own way. And in learning that way, they created a beautiful uh, architecture, super quirky and interesting, and enhancing. I, I remember, I'm thinking, for example, Bredeman de Bries, all of the books he, he published about architecture, all these fortresses and Tuscan architecture, so heavy, and all this use of rustication in terms of the call at the same time in, in, in the column. But then obviously, when you go to the upper orders, yep. that inventive state there. And also, more important as well, is the way they completely adapted the medieval topology of the of the nether of the Dutch house or all the all the houses in, in the in the in the low countries, both in Belgium what it is now Belgium and the Netherlands, they adapted that and they converted it into classical. And that was difficult because this architecture, as you know very well, mm-hmm. it rains, has very pitch roofs, it has um it needs a lot of light because it's much darker in the Netherlands and in Italy. And then all of a sudden, all these principles of classical came. And people wanted to do them because they were feeling that it was giving them order and, yeah. and a structure to, to something that before it was just put, not, not so exaggerated, but it was almost like putting bricks together and solving solutions ad hoc. Well, classical, you need to think in advance. So in order to, 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 to be able to, to solve and to, to adapt the, the typical Dutch architecture, medieval Dutch architecture to Renaissance, they created something completely new because you didn't have the architecture that you have in the Netherlands didn't exist in Italy. But the models that were arriving to the Netherlands were Italian. And also, it was there was another factor. It was the Protestant Reformation Mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. So you cannot imitate straight away. If if imagine a Mm -hmm. a person from from the Netherlands reading the reading Serlio where he started talking about St. Peter's. They wouldn't do that. They, they, want, they couldn't do that because it was puppies. It was Catholic. So they, <laughs> they, they, they there was a lot of information yeah. that wasn't arriving or that they were rejecting because it was Catholic propaganda. It was all the charges that Celio designed, all the charges that Pignola designed. Yeah. Uh, all that cannot, cannot get there because it's totally different. So they have to work with a limited material, but then it, that enhances the inventive. That, that creates something completely new, which is yeah. the that architecture and then which later on in UK would be the so-called Queen Anne style. And there is also a, a style that is called well the Queen Anne is also nicknamed by, by Pepsner when he when he started classifying and they, what what is Queen Anne style. He also called it Pont Street Dutch. Because there is a street in London called Pont Street that is full of these Queen Anne buildings <laughs> that are directly inspired in, in Dutch architecture. So it's called Pont Street Dutch. So it, it's, it's very relevant as well for, for English architecture. The Dutch architecture is super relevant because it, it's the basis of what we know nowadays as Queen Anne and a big portion of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, well, it's with all the brick architecture, um, you have to kind of look twice to really see it. You need to know what you see um, because it's not like a, direct copy of 
of Dutch, of course, but you you can when you see it, you see it. <laughs> correct, correct. For me, at least. And also, brick has a has a problem. Well, not a problem. Uh, uh, when you build in a stone, mm-hmm. because you have to go to the quarry and cut the stone, you can do whatever you want yeah. because you are cutting yeah. in pieces from the quarry, which has a massive piece of rock, and then you 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 cut it and then you get the stone. But bricks are prefabricated, so you don't go to the factory and tell them to make the bricks the size you want. You do the bricks, you decide that the manufacturer does. That nowadays they are standardized, but they have been almost standardized since the Middle Ages. Why? Because it was easier for everyone to, to produce all the bricks on the same size or approximately the same size, because then the guild hall mm-hmm. of brick makers could evaluate the quality of the product. So the, the bricks was have always been a standardized product, which means that if you want to yeah. apply the principle of classical, they may clash. So for classical, brick has always been a challenging because you need to make small adaptations for the brick or you need to do the other way around. Mm-hmm. You lay out the bricks and then depending on how the bricks are laid, then you design the, the classical elements to ensure that all the brick pattern is going to work perfectly. So it's it's more challenging. And I remember having done projects in, in my previous company and it was that they were brick mm-hmm. buildings you need to design a colonnade or, or a, co- a couple of columns in between a brick panel, and because the brick is so powerful and you want to, to, to ensure the size, you want to show the joint, you want to show, for example, that on the edge of the panel there is a perfect square, that is defining you. The, the, the modules of the brick and the modules of the future classical elements. So it's more challenging to build in exposed brick than to build in a stone. Yeah. Yeah, especially uh, exposed brick if you don't have the you don't render it yeah you're gonna see it and you want everything to be lined up really nicely and not have half bricks or one third bricks at one side you want to be all right you, you, you don't want to because also if you cut the bricks to 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 achieve the effect that you want you are taking out the structural coherence of the whole facade well in a stone you come plan in advance and then the ash labs work well because you cut them bespoke but the brick doesn't so that's what is something is it's always more yeah. challenging to, to mm-hmm. draw to, to build with brick with exposed brick because if it is not exposed you render and that hides all the imperfection but exposed brick is is, is is an art to build in exposed brick yeah yeah and it's beautiful if you walk in London you see how much uh, well uh, detail ornament they still made out of brick like the 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 the, the shaped bricks here and there uh, or just interesting patterns uh there's there's and then yeah the, the the orders made out of brick it's just stunning also at the victoria and albert museum where we we met last uh well a couple of days ago yeah it's uh it's it's incredible what you can achieve with brick but also there they had extremely small um amounts of yeah uh, tight tolerances between the stones correct that, that, that sometimes because the bricks will have like a little belly and a little hole so that they, they the, the, the way they were, the, the mortar was inside the brick as opposed to, to, to regular bricks where the mortar yeah. is outside. And I think that the, the, the important thing as we were talking the other day in the, about the brick was this mass produced beauty. Because when you produce ornaments in brick, you're producing them in mass. Yeah. And then you apply them. And then the, you, when you see all the brick lagering uh, manuals of 19th century, they were written by the manufacturers who were telling you, these are all our products, this is all the catalog, come and buy them, and these are the things that you can do. 
with them. It 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 was wonderful, and and you had plenty and uh, lots of yeah. ornaments. You go again, <laughs> yeah, through Catalan Square, through Ponte Street. You see a lot of elements that repeat, but because they can be repeated in different ways, there is no two houses who are the same, even if they are using all of them the same elements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe a little shift mm-hmm. from architecture and your role as architect to yeah your other line of work. Yeah, my, my night job. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's my night uh, job. Yeah. So could you describe first to people who don't know, what is the Classic Planning Institute? So the, the Classic Planning Institute is an institution. It's, 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 it's a place that, as I, as I like saying, we have a commitment to beauty and we have a commitment to the creation of beautiful places for, for, for everyone. We are an NGO. And our mission is to, to, to bring beauty to everywhere through, the, through, through different ways. The Classic Planning Institute has five divisions which are the studio, the academy, the mm-hmm. library, the laboratory, and the store. And each of them has its own mission within bringing beauty to everyone. Because the studio is a place where we mm-hmm. make beauty. It's a consultancy. And anyone is invited to come and, 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 and inquire information from us. How can we help them to, to make beautiful places, to make that place more beautiful? In the academy, we teach them how to do that. We, we teach everyone to... Yeah the principle of architectural literacy and classic planning, as you did last year with us. And we also teach you how to interact with your community to be able to to challenge the architectural establishment and the planning establishment and and be able to enter into that discourse, not challenge in a negative way, Mm -hmm. challenge also as participation, because it's very important to to participate and not Mm -hmm. to be the passive public. That's something, one of the things that we like to do at the Classic Planning Institute is to involve everyone, to involve the general public, which is, part of, of the whole general movement on classical and traditional architecture, starting with the architectural pricing, yeah. the, 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 the summer school that you track that you wonderfully do in, in, in summer in the Netherlands, what Nadia does in La Tablegon, what Alejandro does in Spain. It's the most important and beautiful thing is to bring mm-hmm. people who are architects, people who then discover that they can have an opinion on architecture because Sometimes the, the modernist establishment tells you, oh, no, 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 you don't know. You don't know about architecture. You don't know about Le Corbusier. This is too complex for you to understand. And no. I think that of all the arts, <laughs> architecture is the one that we all, we, you can't get rid of it. If you tell me, oh, I don't like contemporary music, don't worry. You get your, you only buy CDs of Mozart. You only listen to Mozart. Nobody worries you. I don't like modern art. I only like um, pre-Raphaelite art. You go to the Tate mode to Tate Britain, and you have all the profile yeah. that you want. If you don't want to see anything else, you don't visit the room. I don't like science fiction. Mm-hmm. Don't read it. I don't like horror movies. Don't watch them. I don't like modernist architecture. But yeah. luck. You, you you live on it. Yeah. I don't like I don't like my <laughs> it's house. Everywhere. It's everywhere. You you need to live in architecture. So I think it's very important that if which is what the, what the public wants, and it's always what, what they normally say. I mean, when it was a study, they were telling us, oh, no one will come to you to tell you that they want a traditional house. Everyone, according to the budget, will ask you for, tend to ask you for something traditional. Because they like it, because we all love it. It's what people want, because it's what roots you to, to the place. And that's, 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 that's quite important, and that's, and that's basically what we try to do, or what we do. 
at the at the classic planning academy. We teach people how to interact and how to 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 take part on that. At the at the at the library, the library yeah. is a repository on classical knowledge, and it's closely tied to the academy in the sense that it's where you need information about something as a library. You go to the library and get the book. And the good thing is that again, nowadays everything is in the internet. You don't need like in the past. You had to go to a bookshop, find an old copy of Palladio, or get a bad edition of Palladio with very small illustrations. Now you can get everything, and the classic planning library is a facilitator of that knowledge. So whenever someone needs information on something, here we are to provide it to them, to provide it the direction on what they have to to look. So it's also cultural consultancy, and in continuation of that cultural labor is the laboratory. The laboratory is a place to experiment, to experience uh, on classical architecture and the neuroscientific approach on classical architecture. Um, we follow uh, the theories of Anne Sussman, Brandon Rowe, and many others. And we do a lot of eye tracking researches that demonstrate that people feel more comfortable and mm-hmm. they feel happier with a structure and architecture. It doesn't have to be fully classical, but as far as it's structured and well proportioned, which is another way of calling classical. You feel happy, and and you feel that people read the build the classical buildings in a in a similar way, of this of, of that you see things that make you happy. Well, the way we read modernist buildings, in most of the cases, yeah, it makes it makes you feel confused and make you feel uh, lost as you can feel confused with many other things. So all the eye tracking studies are very important for for classical and traditional architecture because, as I as I like to say. They they justify they they are an attempt mm-hmm. to scientifically justify beauty and also more important they demonstrate that people like Logier people like Durand who are right Logier and Durand during mm-hmm. the 18th century now the modernists claim them as the first mm-hmm. modernists when you read about them Logier says no I'm not going to discuss about proportions because the proportions are what they are and they are what they are because they are pleasant to the eye. Dugan at the end of 19th century says the same. Yeah. I am I am not this because Dugan was professor in the a professor in the in the Cole Polytechnique he was a super important professor there and he was building the new Polytechnique the new uh, studies mm-hmm. of architecture for the new Napoleonic Empire so he was taking it very seriously Napoleon was taking it very seriously he was providing buildings for the empire so he was saying we are here to make buildings for the emperor. So let's not waste our time in theories of architecture. <laughs> let's, that, let's just do beautiful architecture, which has the proportion that they have, because they're pleasant to the eye. Period. And start drawing Doric order. So that that is what Dugan says yeah. in his book. <laughs> so not let's not build orders. No, yeah. no. It's telling That's you fantastic. let's not make a discussion on the right proportion of the Doric order, and let's not draw Doric order so that you can uh, draw. And that this is very important on on that sense. So and that links with what Anne Sassman and many others are saying about that. And finally, the STOA, as its name says, mm-hmm. is a space for public discussion. That it's a, it's a space for debate and and, and, and and gathering. And it takes the shape of a virtual event every year called Traditional Architectural Gathering, to which all the listeners are invited to attend, which will be at the end of February next year. And many of you may have already seen all the recordings on YouTube. So that's the that's that's the five divisions that we have there. And, and as I was saying, our overall purpose is the commitment to beauty and the creation of a beautiful places. And our motto is, "What can we do for you?" Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a whole it's a set of five 
different um, yeah, entities under one roof, you could say. Yep. And you are also director of studies at the Classic Planning Academy. Um, Correct. So, yeah, um, maybe bef before we go to that, so why did you start collaborating with Dr. Nir Buras? Like, how did you meet him and how did you get involved with, with the Classic Planning Institute? And also then, um, uh, how were you appointed director of studies? And, um, yeah. It, it, it started actually with Lucien Style putting us in contact. Dr. Buras was looking for information about Middle East architecture because he was doing a project in Jerusalem. And I wrote him back with all the, all, all the information mm -hmm. I could provide him in, uh, in, in two pages of email. I provided it to him. And I sent the email to him and then he, he sent me, oh, do you, would you like to meet on Zoom and discuss the, the email that you have sent me? And then when I met him and then when he started telling me about what he did in the Classic Planning Academy, and then he told me, actually, I need a colleague to help me with this. I need a colleague who is, as he likes to say, literate in classical architecture, who has knowledge on classical architecture, who is able to teach others yeah. how to draw the orders and how to do architecture and how to do projects, because it's not only about the theoretical knowledge, it's also the practical part of someone who has designed it in real life to to, to tell people, no, don't put that corner mm -hmm. there because it's too much, or you better move the, the column a little bit because it's interacting with other elements. So I think that since minute one, we got on really, really well. And I met him just before the, the GR1 was started. The GR just started. Yeah. I met him a couple of months before before the class, the course started. And he told me, look, I mean, I need someone to, to, to basically manage all this because he's busy with other stuff within the, with the institute, with the store, with the and with the studio, and he said, I need someone to, to run this. Do you want to run it? And he said, yes, please. I always wanted to, to do it. I think it was something that I had like a, like a little needle in my heart. I always want, I, I love <laughs> talking about classical architecture. I, I, am, I always, I, as, I, as I was saying, I mean, I love to help people yeah. to, to get uh, more knowledge about this, but I also loved designing. So I, I was never, I, I, I had a bit, I remember in 2011, uh, Lucien Style invited me to go to Notre Dame to give a seminar on Islamic architecture. And I was saying, oh, I love this. And I would love to, to teach at Notre Dame or anywhere. But that was involving me not working. And we have mm -hmm. these human beings, we have this bad habit of needing money to survive, etc. So it's it's a problem that, that humans have. So I, I couldn't just say, yeah. leave everything for the possibility of teaching, especially after having been so recently in 2010, so long time unemployed that I didn't have anything and mm -hmm. I wanted to, to do it. So I had that over the years. So when, when Dr. Buras offered me the opportunity, I said, yes, I want to go for it. I think it's perfect for me because it's I can't do it in my spare time. It's not full-time commitment, but at the same time, it's super exciting. So that's basically how how we entered in, how we stayed in touch, and yeah. then. Yeah, and I can say it was a, a wonderful educational experience. Just learning how to draw the orders is a very, it almost feels like a, a rite of passage in some way. It's really kind of an initiation in, yeah, this system of designing, and it brings so much, and it's so exciting to start then playing with that. So for me, it was a really great experience yeah i'm happy that that it was and, and thank you for for that in directly indirectly thank you um it is i always say the same learning classical architecture is like learning a language 
when you learn a language, you need to start very basically with the basic grammar. But imagine that instead of learning a language that um, is written in Latin characters, you have to learn a language that is in non-Latin characters. Imagine you have to learn all of a sudden Japanese, and then in Japanese you need to learn first the, the basic syllabs, then you go to a bit more complex syllabs, and then you go to the to the kanji. And then, and, and depending on your level of study, you can read a certain amount of, of kanjis. So without wanting to do the typical comparison, exotic comparison with or, uh, the Orient and the, um, and the West, learning classic, learning classical architecture, learning a language. And the first thing you need to do to learn is learn the moldings. Then learn how the, the elements are structured, how the full order. And then from there, you learn how to combine the elements. So I, I, I like saying that it's a process of learning a language. And that's, I think that's probably why everyone who, who does it and that's loving it because it's like you're learning a language and you're learning to express things in a new, yeah. in a new language. So, and that's always exciting because every language has its mm -hmm. own yeah. particularities. So there are things that you can say in English with one word that in Spain require 10 and vice versa. And that's the beauty of the languages. There are concepts that exist in some language and others not. And classical architecture is the same. It's a language to express an ideal of harmonic life. That's that's how I like to to call it. It's 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 an abstraction of nature. Is is something derived from nature, but it's also tamed nature. And it's a language that you learn. Yeah. And as all languages, as all writings, it has to be learned first by hand to enhance this eye-brain connection that make us happy because we see what we draw. And also another important thing of what that we make, all, all, all of you, we were making drawing by hand like crazy is because as human beings, we tend to do the minimum effort on everything we do because we want to preserve energy. And our yeah. brain, we see the size of the, the, size of the paper hmm. and we will tell the brain to draw an order of architecture, Corinthian. And then you know that the Corinthian is super detailed. But your brain knows that in the space that you have for that, they cannot, you cannot draw everything that you want. Then you will very, almost automatically, after a couple of attempts, you yeah. just learn how to, 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 to select which information you want to show. Well, on the contrary, if, you, if we start teaching you how to draw all that in AutoCAD, you will tend to draw everything because in AutoCAD you can zoom to maximum scale that you want. <laughs> yeah. So that's why it is important to to enhance yeah. that hand eye connection yeah. that later on will help you when you are drafting, when you are scheduling, when you are doodling, when you are preparing a, a, a final design. It will allow you to, to 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 select what you want to show, what you don't want to show, and what you can show and what you cannot show. I always put the, the same story. I mean, I, I had one junior colleague in my in my current company who was designing a dining room. And they drew all the cutlery, all the plates, all the all all the um, all the napkins that were in the table. One of the reasons why we did it is because we needed to know mm -hmm. calculate the the distance between chairs, considering the full service, which is much more than the usual distance you put 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 into into chairs. But then when you print the file at one to one hundred, you just see a massive black dot in the table. So you you need to and that happens because we don't. If if you don't train mm -hmm. your your hand eye brain connection, you tend to, you, you you tend to to have those problems. So that's why one of our key one one of our key points is to draw by hand, especially at the very beginning, 
then yeah. later on, I mean, you, you, you ended up, for example, drawing by AutoCAD. And this year, we had the students who very who were arch, professional architects already. They had a reencounter. They, they met themselves again in classical, in, in drawing by hand, but very quickly, for quickness, they moved to to AutoCAD. But the beginning of, of every design process is always by hand, and that's why we, we try to enhance at the academy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you combine uh, a full-time job with doing all this teaching on the side? I would say that with a lot of passion. Is it is it hard because or I is it? Yeah. Uh, it is. Mm-hmm. It can be a bit hard, but when you like it, you don't care, you don't mind. And I have to be thankful enough that my current boss is flexible enough to allow me yeah. a little. <laughs> to be teaching, um, but also, I mean, I enjoy it. And when you do something that you love, you you don't care. I mean, it's the same thing as people who like working out and people who like lifting a lot of weight. And they thought that that's insane, but or people who are into bodybuilding or, or uh, the same way, but, but you are spending all that time there in the gym, just killing yourself, doing a lot of exercise, being all day tired because you're all, the only thing you need is working out. But because you like it, you do it. Or people who run, people who... Um, who do marathons or, or any uh, or any other healthy activity that that you love, or people who like playing role games or people who like playing video games, and mm-hmm. you, you love it. You love you love what you do, and when you love what you do, time doesn't matter. You you just enjoy it. It's it's yeah. part of it, and I mean, no. it's it's like a hobby somehow. And to me, it's like somehow a way of giving back. What every what other people gave to me, somehow it's like okay, I learned. I had people mm-hmm. who guided me. I had people who who helped me to be what I am. And if I can teach other people that that same path, or if I can teach them to 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 become better designers and to contribute to design something better in the world, I am very happy to to do it because I actually love it. It's 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 challenging. It's nurturing to see yeah. people going. You, you teach them to do something and then you see them doing it, it's 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 very fulfilling. So you do, you don't mind about all the difficulties and all the tiredness yeah. because sometimes yeah. it can be tiring. I mean I <laughs> I I remember on Thursdays I start working at eight o'clock and finish at 10 and 30 like continuously with just a little lunch break and the time that I go from the office to 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 to, to my house where I teach. But you don't mind. You, 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 because you do it with love and and you do it with joy, yeah. and you know that you are also that people are so appreciating it that people are enjoying it. So it's all a nurturing experience. Yeah, 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 and um, yeah, I think uh, I experienced that a little bit as at uh, the summer school <clears throat> in Utrecht, of course, uh, as well. Yes, it's uh, yeah. It's really great also to see the students. That's, of course, like a, um, a school where, yeah, people meet each other in real life. But, um, yeah, uh, to, to see people develop and there's enormous joy in that, I think. I think so. And it's also because, as we were saying before, you go to a pottery course and you're creating a, a beautiful base, a beautiful pot. And, mm-hmm. and that is nice. Because you are creating something for you, but when you are creating architecture, it's not only for you; it's for everyone. Yeah. 
and that, that and even more like what you do in, in Utrecht, yeah. which is more yeah. urbanizing. It's let's build a beautiful city, which is super beautiful and super ambitious, but that's what you are doing. So you are not yeah. only building a beautiful facade that everyone will see when they walk, it's the whole thing that people are going to see when they walk, and that's nurturing. You you, you have experienced that as well. So it's very nurturing yeah. to see that people bring without no, mm-hmm. not knowing what's going on. And then when they leave, they have they, they know very well, even better than ourselves, what they're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe very quickly, one last thing. What are your expectations for the future of the CPI, the Classic well, Planning Institute? The future for the CPA is continue. As we're doing, we have done three years because we started basically in 2020. We have done three years of beginner's year of year one. We are about to start year two. Um, you're very welcome to, to start. I'm, I'm quite excited to have you in year two. But the, the future mm-hmm. is to, to carry on with this mission of teaching people and teaching people how to achieve the, the, the classical architecture. Teach everyone that it's not an, a lost art, that you can learn it. And this is very important because the first thing that when mm-hmm. everyone goes to to, to, to a modernist and tell them, oh, I want to build classical. Nobody builds classical anymore. Why? Because nobody knows how to do it. It's a lost art. Um, <laughs> it isn't. And, I, and this is something that I always say to everyone. Beware the, modern, beware the modernist. Be careful with them because they know a lot about classical. But they don't want you to know. Because if you know, then you're not going to, you are not going to take them seriously as the only alternative. So it is very important to, to, to learn that. And sometimes people don't have time, people don't have the will, they don't know how to start. And that's why we are here, to, 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 to teach them and to guide them. And the future for the CPA is to continue with our mission. I think that in, in the past years, there has been a growing, growing community. The architectural uprising, Le Table Ronde, Let's Build a Beautiful City. We want to collaborate with everyone. We want to collaborate with, with, with all of you and to... And to, to to carry on growing, carry on growing together, because I think that the mission that we all have is this common commitment to beauty. And we all teach yeah. and we all want to enhance everyone learning how to do beautiful things. And, and that's that's I think that's that's the future that they want for the for the CPA to carry on teaching and, and, and spreading the word to everyone who wants to, to listen, and which, which sometimes I get surprised how many people want to learn more and more and more mm-hmm. and it's really nurturing and, and incredible i mean we, we have already the, the the overpassed the number of people we need for, for for the next year one which is incredible i mean and we are going to start after easter so we have already covered the the the, the, the minimum so it's it's continuum eventually wow. one day yeah we will like to be a an institution that can actually issue a, a title an official title, not a private certificate, as, as we do now, we would love one day to become a, a school mm-hmm. on architecture. And I think that what I like about the CPA as well is that we are virtual. And being, some people might say, oh, it's virtual, it's not as serious. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, we are, as you were saying at the beginning, we, we can reach everyone in the world by being virtual. There are people who cannot move for multiple reasons. And that's I think that's that's our our goal to reach everyone to to the comfort of their houses and to 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 the best of their needs. 
because sometimes you have people who have children or have a mm-hmm. demanding job. And it's important. I mean, I, I this year we have people from Canada, from the United States, and from Bangladesh. Last year we had people from Norway, from the Netherlands, from the States, from Dubai, and yep. from Australia. <laughs> the year before we were from Mexico, yep. from Jordania. So that's that's the good thing. We have people from all over the world. And that's also important because there are places in the in, in the world where people cannot learn because there is no information about that. So but basically, other than Notre Dame and, and the small community that is inbound and, and all ourselves and architectural pricing, apart from Notre Dame and, and from us as a wider community, there is no place to, to learn classical. So I think it's important to give people the, yeah. the tools to do that. That's that's how I, I see or I would like the the CPI to move forward in the in the future, giving more to the community, but also becoming like together with everyone, because I think that all this white community, we are all together towards pointing on the same direction. I think that one day I would love all of us together to, to be the board of a university, focus only on classical architecture, perhaps in Europe, as a counterbalance, not, con- <laughs> not, not just a confidence, yeah. as a counterbalance yeah. to Notre Dame. It, it would be great either based in Belgium, in Paris, in Rome, in Sevilla, anywhere in, in Europe, in any of the beautiful cities in which we live in Europe, yeah. how to to have a school there based on teaching the beauty. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it, it's... Um, I really look forward to, uh, yeah, to the second year. It's going to be busy but <laughs> i'm gonna try and uh it's, there's it's, it's, uh, yeah, a lot a lot in schedule so i'm 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 sure it's going to be quite a quite a beautiful experience and while year one as you know is organized more on on learning to draw learning learning the basic learning the language year two is to enhance your language so you already know the language so now we're going to polish it we're going to write more beautiful sentences. We're going to write poetry, and we're going to learn literature. Well, the first thing you you learn is to read, to to, to speak, and then we will talk. So when you learn English, you you first know how to say how do you do, how I am, do you want a cup of tea, and then we will talk about Jane Austen and Charles Dickens and Shakespeare and, and Alan Poe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so this is the same. So it will be a very fascinating journey, which I hope that you and all your other colleagues will enjoy. Yeah. Fantastic. I think, um, yeah, uh, maybe, um, yeah, if you have some last things to mention or words for the public, that would be, yeah, this would be a good time uh, because we're already at uh, one hour and 16 minutes. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> we've been talking already for quite some time. Yeah, you know, I'm Spanish and I love talking. So it's, and you make me talk about something I like. <laughs> that's, that's what happens. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for, <laughs> for all this. I would say that don't, if, don't feel that you are alone if you want to, 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 to search this beautiful traditional architecture. If you want to bring the best of the past for the present and the future, you are not alone. You will find that architectural uprising is, would be your first stage. You meet people there. You will meet, probably meet a lot of local people who, are, who think the same of, of you. And if you want to learn more, come to us. Come to the CPI. Mm-hmm. Come to the best beautiful, beautiful city. Come to... To, to La Table Ronde, to, to Inbao, Spain. Learn with us. 
let's have fun together. That's that's what I would say. And as I always say that be positive and diplomatic, mm-hmm. even if you don't like what you see. There is always a way of reframing the discourse to challenge modernism. And always I I, I always say it's yeah. similar. If you if you want to challenge a development, if you want to challenge something, don't go and say, no, you are horrible, you 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 are a stupid modernist, blah blah blah, you are a dictator, blah, blah, blah. Calm down. Tell that you and or if you want to engage with the community to to propose something, always think these three points. What do you like about the place in where you are? Mm-hmm. Of the things that you like, what would you like to see more? And what are the things that aren't there mm-hmm. that you would like to see? If you frame the discourse of challenging yeah. a, a, a development, of challenging a modernist architect, challenging a modernist uh, proposal, if you frame the discourse on that, focusing on what the virtues of the traditional city as opposed to the modernist development, that will allow you to frame the discourse in positive mm-hmm. terms and in such yeah. a way that nobody can can be against it because we all want beauty, we all want that. And at the end of the day, with calm and diplomacy and delicacy, you can convince anyone to 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 move toward beauty and toward beauty, the beautiful architecture that we all share together as a heritage. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful last words. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful place to, well, thank you for this amazing interview. I, I think I haven't done a lot of the speaking, but uh, I just wanted to give you the space to to tell because I know uh, how you can tell. And it, it's always really nice to just sit back and soak it all in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but I think that's a good opportunity for the public to to have this as well. So yeah, thank you again for being at the podcast. Well, and thank you very much to you for, for the opportunity. I mean, I am super happy to, to be here. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Aesthetic City podcast. If you want to know more about Pablo's blog or learn about the Classic Planning Institute and the Classic Planning Academy, find the link in the description. If you like our content and want to support what we do, you can support us in various ways. The easiest way is to give this podcast a favorable review. Another way to support this podcast is to share it with colleagues and friends. You can also follow us on X, subscribe to our YouTube channel or our Substack newsletter. And finally, the ultimate way to support The Aesthetic City is to become a patron. Find the Patreon link in the description. For more information about this platform, visit theaestheticcity.com. Thank you until next time.